Before we start, I'd like to tell you about a new initiative from TXF, the Export and Agency Finance World Fair. The World Fair is a two-week export finance extravaganza coming to a screen near you from the 19th to the 30th of October, with specific focus on Asia, Africa, the Middle East and the Americas. 2020 has been a difficult year for everyone and one of the particular challenges facing our market has been how to originate new business. With that in mind, the World Fair will have a big focus on one-to-one networking meetings. TXF is in a unique position in that we have deep relationships with all partners within the market, ECAs, borrowers, exporters, commercial banks, the insurance sector, everyone else. And we want to use that and help you to set up a whole calendar of one-to-one meetings so that you can begin to build up your pipeline going into 2021 and, and beyond. So if you want not only great content and discussion, but to meet new people and to build up your pipeline, go along to txfnews.com events read about the World Fair, and hopefully we'll see you later in October. Thanks. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day. It will brighten all array. If we keep on the sunny side of life. Welcome to the latest edition of the TXF Export Finance Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Melanie Lawrence, Specialised Finance, African Export Import Bank, Gabby Buck, Managing Director, GKB Ventures, and Chris Mittman, Head of Export and Agency Finance at Investec. And today we're going to have a wide-ranging discussion on the impact and aftermath of COVID-19, specifically on export finance provision in Africa. Uh, We'll be looking at what impact it's having on existing and future books for commercial banks. Uh, We'll be looking at the options that are available in terms of borrowing uh, for uh, various sovereigns on the African content, looking at local content rules and some changes that could be applied there. Specifically, uh, we'll also be looking at healthcare and social impact and the role that ECAs could be playing on supporting that, convergence between development banks and ECAs, and also uh, the retraction that has been seen from the PRI market and what impact that's having as well. So without further ado, we'll get on to it. Um, I thought best place to start actually is probably with you, Chris, and maybe just um, a short summary of, of, of where we are at the moment, where we are in terms of bank provision at the, at the current time. Um, I, I think it's unavoidable to talk about sort of COVID in its current format because that's where we are at the moment and we can use that sort of as a as a launching pad to talk into a uh, a uh, a wider discussion as to where we're going next so so chris i mean what what is the the situation on on, on the ground how are you finding it and 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 how is uh, how is export finance working and particularly uh, in africa at the moment sure uh, so i think you can divide the answer into two one is is current book uh, I think the immediate reaction to COVID and the and the, uh, the the shutdown of economies and has an immediate impact on current book. And so necessarily, 
a lot of banks have been focused on uh, sectors which have been heavily impacted by COVID. Suffice to say, uh, the larger the book, the more preoccupied you've been. Uh, obviously, aviation, uh, cruise ships, and yards, and so on and so forth. Uh, and there's been a pretty good, I think, a pretty good response there generally by the ECAs and the banks involved in those sectors in addressing the immediate challenges that they face. Uh, and then I think the, the other side is obviously what happens to the current pipeline uh, and what's been the impact there, because this crisis hasn't started in the bank, in the financial systems, it's started elsewhere, is now flowing through into the real economy and probably has some way to travel yet before the true impact on the financial sector, it can be uh, can be measured. So, what does it mean for investment decisions by clients uh, who are developing projects, as well as by the banks and ECAs who've been asked to finance them? And I think when when this first started, that the feedback generally from the market was the pipelines are still strong going into the end of Q4 into Q1 uh, 2020. There had been, uh, it was a question of how to, how to deliver on those, but no real slowdown investment decisions by clients and deals were progressing. Some logistical barriers to uh, site visits, for instance, which was slowing down financial closing. Uh, I, think, I think that position seems to be changing somewhat, and I know we'll talk about it later, but also with the, with the, with the relative retraction of the PRI markets, uh, uh, leading to a, a loss of commercial loan capacity is beginning to see the impact of COVID on future deals being closed uh, at the moment. So that's that's pretty much the the, the, the situation as 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 we see it. Okay, thanks. And um, um, Melanie, if you if you wouldn't mind coming in in there, obviously your position sort of slightly different. Sort of Chris is on the sort of investec on the, sort of the, the the investment banking side. Afreg's in bank, it, yes, very different mandate to sort of push activity in in Africa specifically. So, I mean, how how have you found the situation over over the last few months, and how has it developed, and and what pressure has it put on on your institution? Great. Well, thanks, Dan. I must echo what Chris says. This certainly um, has not been a slowdown in activity from what we have seen. Uh, you know, projects have not been sort of shelved. I think things have been impacted from a logistical point of view, but based on what we have seen, there still appears to be a lot of activity. Uh, we get new inquiries, um, you know, even currently for projects that are, are going on on the continent. So from our perspective, I think a lot of activity. However, in addition to that, you know, the, given the role of Afrexim Bank, we have implemented certain programs to also assist our member countries to deal with the impact of COVID-19, which has also generated a lot of activity. Um, you know, one such initiative is what we uh, call PATIMFA, which stands for the Pandemic Trade Impact Mitigation Facility. It was a $3 billion facility, which was announced in April this year. And it's to provide financial assistance to our member countries to help them to adjust to the impacts, to the economic shocks, the impact it would have on the health services in the country. And it's been hugely successful. You know, everything from uh, central banks to financial institutions, as well as clients in our member countries, corporate clients, have accessed the facility 
We've dispersed over 5 billion so far, even though the program was launched at, uh, at 3 billion. The pipeline is quite active. We, we have another almost $7 billion of pipeline transactions. So from an activity point of view, the need is there. Possibly the focus has shifted a little bit to try to deal with supply chain disruptions, impacts um, you know, from sort of reduced revenues due to reduced uh, reduction in royalties and um, you know, other sources of income that governments would generally uh, have access to, to be able to help to deal with that, as well as to beef up healthcare sectors. So we've seen a slight shift towards uh, more those types of activities, but certainly on the usual, business as usual, infrastructure projects, we, we still see uh, those projects going on. So from Afrix and Bank's perspective, I think it's been an even busier period than we've had uh, in the past. Mm, mm, yeah, no, I, I can imagine very well, and it's uh, yeah, sounds like an incredible amount of activity so far. Um, Gabby, just um, so one of the things that Melanie sort of mentioned is that sort of the fund that they put in place was to, um, uh, in in large part, deal with the economic shock of of COVID, and and obviously, sort of there is the the geopolitical risk landscape within within Africa um, has has changed sort of dramatically based on on sort of the uh the last few months i mean how how have you seen that and how has that sort of uh, impact what you're seeing in the in the market at the current time well i think we're going to be discussing that over this this podcast and i think that's going to be an interesting topic but i think what we have seen so far is um and it's very similar to what melanie and chris have been saying um and we, we're fortunate as an independent advisor so we don't have a book so we're just looking at the, the new transactions. So for us, this period has been incredibly busy, um, but it's been incredibly busy working with sponsors and sovereigns, closing the deals and transactions that were already in the pipe. Um, so for us, it's, it's you know, 2020 has been uh, uh, a very productive uh, year. Um, there's still a lot of um, appetite um, by the export credit agencies and we are predominantly an ECA advisory boutique firm. Um, uh, the issue I think, you know, to answer your specific question about what it's going to look like going forward is that if you look at the world economy historically, it's all been driven off the back of growth. Everybody's been looking at GDP growth as a way of, of facilitating uh, further developments in both domestically and internationally. Um, and I think growth is going to be really difficult to find, except in Africa. So my sense is that Africa is going to be the main area where sovereigns outside of Africa and, and also within Africa are going to be very eager and very hungry to be looking at um, stimulating their own economies and, and internationally as Africa has been the main hunting ground. And I think you'll see a lot of sovereigns will be becoming more proactive in trying to promote business in, in, in the continent. Okay, thanks. Um, I mean, Chris, have you, is that something you're seeing as well in terms of sovereigns being a bit more proactive? Responsible use of the mute button. Apologies, Dan. So <laughs> I said all the good stuff. You've missed it already. Uh, hmm. So I think Africa's a, Africa has always been a, a, a continent where the sovereign has played a critical role in development of essential infrastructure. 
for the benefit of the, the population. Uh, and it puts a burden on them and their balance sheets. Uh, and I think that what we're seeing is exactly as Gabby says, that there's, there's, a, there's a push to, to promote and see projects through, which are in the current pipeline. Uh, I think there's, and, uh, and we see that continuing over the next few months. I think what everyone's waiting to see is what happens with, with COVID generally. Is it coming back in the winter? Is it gonna surge again? What impact will that have on the investor market? Uh, we're seeing the bond prices move around considerably in Africa since, since COVID struck. And we're seeing a parallel uh, withdrawal. This is what we see. Uh, I can't speak for what everyone else sees, but we see a relative withdrawal of the PRI market from the commercial loan side. So there, there may be aspirations to deliver projects, uh, but the reality is some projects are getting held up now due to the lack of 100% financing being available. And uh, that, that commercial loan market has been really quite bank PRI driven. Uh, you could almost say lazy to some extent in that, you know, get PRI, apply appropriate capital weighting, deploy bank balance sheet for five years, there's your commercial loan. And it hasn't really paid any attention to or correlated to in the real world where the real risk is. So ministers have been raising that money uh, variously for five to seven year tenors, occasionally slightly longer, uh, at a pricing that could range from four to 6% all in, uh, including risk mitigation costs. And, and then the relative bond is, is, is trading at eight, nine, 10% right now, and the PRI market shut. How do you, where do you go? And how do you close that gap? And a lot of banks in the market just don't have the distribution capability who hold these mandates uh, for various reasons, deal flow, network, to, to deploy uh, sophisticated distribution machines to go beyond the straightforward PRI. We're seeing a lot of people uh, lean into the development banks, people like Afrexim. Thank God for you, Melanie. Please, please stay there and keep doing what you're doing. I, I think uh, we're seeing banks turn there initially because they know who they are. But be beyond, beyond that, there's a real gap and projects are being held up. So I, I think that yes, next two or three months, deals will still close where, the, where insurance capacity had been reserved and effectively bound, uh, but we are seeing MBIs not being honored or, or just being withdrawn uh, in, in, in a lot of deals. And those deals are now on hold unless the ministry can come up with its own cash for the 15%. Gabby, you had a point there? Yeah, I, I totally agree with what Chris said. Um, the point that I was trying to make was that um, over and above what the African sovereigns will be wanting to, un to achieve in Africa, my, my point I was trying to make was that um, the Europeans, the, the US, the Chinese will, I think, be looking at Africa um, as one of the primary uh, areas to where they can seek growth for their own businesses and I think Africa is going to be from a geopolitical um, 
going to be much more important in terms of the world global um, trade and projects than it has been in the past, because it's going to be one of the few areas where there is going to be growth opportunities. Okay, um, we'll come back to that in a second, Gabby. I, I just want to kind of just keep with sort of Chris for a moment and then go to sort of Melanie within this sort of point um, related to PRI. Um, you started, Chris, by saying it was, it was is, is a relative uh, retraction from the PRI market. It, it, it sounds um, like quite significantly relative retraction. Um, you, you sort of said that you, you suspect things will begin to work themselves through. And, and return to something like normality, but I mean, how, how long? How long do you expect that's going to be going to take? I mean, is and and what are the long-term effects going to be on in terms of whether it's the, the you know the confidence of the market that the PRI sector is going to be there? Yeah. Uh, so I think dealing with PRI capacity itself, uh, I think. The, the, the brokers in the market will tell you that certain markets have, have definitely dried up. The combination of demand for volume of coverage uh, just ex out, uh, outstrips supply is how, how it would be described. Uh, we see it as much more wholesale. Uh, and also they're holding out the prospect of a return of capacity to those markets. But when you have these debt relief programs going on in Africa, a whole bunch of triggers have pulled have been pulled to create the situation where PRI market is is uh, is is definitely not not where it was pre pre COVID. That's for sure. Uh, and you could you could look at why that is. Uh, the, 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 I think the debt relief, the G twenty announcements, uh, the the bond pricing jumping all over the place, the uncertainty around how hard COVID will hit the continent, uh, uh, the oil price moving down the way and then back up. I think all these things. Uh, create uncertainty and so I think that's on the PRI side I think on the investor side you know non-traditional investors they have been going into if you talk to asset managers they, they, they've been going into the liquid instruments the bonds why wouldn't you and I think that uh, if you talk to some of those investors as to where they see the market settling uh, they're talking Yes, it might settle Q3, Q4. Will they go wholesale into long-term private side deals where they're locking in liquidity for three to five years? Uh, and what will the ticket sizes be? I think the ticket sizes will reduce. I think they'll be going for spread in their books and uh, as they unwind some of the liquid positions to redeploy into, into term positions. There's, there's caution there. The caution that this, this, this COVID thing will, will wax and wane and ebb and flow and its impact will, will come and go. Uh, so the hope that we'll reach some sort of new normal or back to normal or somewhere between those two things, whatever that is, uh, normalcy, uh, I think that's a forlorn hope. I, I think that we're just going to have to deal with the reality of an extremely unpredictable market for the next next 12 to 18 months at least okay emotions playing though i think you're right chris i think banks insurers um when they are anxious will be much more risk averse and 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 i think that we're still in this in this period where everyone is still anxious not knowing where this is all going now i think it's when everybody's happy we'll take more risks you know it's why 
you know, waiters always get greater tips when it's a sunny day. And I think we're still, we're still not in that sunny day yet. And, um, but I agree with you. I think that um, uh, as a particular part of the market starts to pull back, um, you know, new players will come in and see, and see value. Okay. So there's always going to be capacity, but it's going to be from a different source of uh, investor base. Yeah. Melanie, before, before we go into the investor base, just on this sort of PRI point, I mean, is, is it something that sort of you've been, been aware of and is it a sort of a gap that you've been trying to fill in, in any way? Sort of within, does that fit within your mandate at Afro-Exim Bank? Absolutely, Dan. And I think sort of where Gabby ended his statement is, is spot on. There's definitely a, a move to seek other forms of uh, mitigation. We have seen the impact, in fact, in, in a more positive light for Afrixim Bank. Um, we've been approached on a number of transactions where projects that have been cooked for quite some time now suddenly find themselves without the cover that they thought they had uh, initially. I think Chris had made the point that even where there were NBIs provided upfront, insurers are now turning around and say, well, actually, we no longer have the capacity. And now everyone's scurrying around trying to find ways to, to be able to bridge the gap. And the good thing for Afrexin Bank is that we do have instruments to respond to that. Um, we have recently uh, you know, received a flurry of inquiries for this kind of support. We have country risk cover that uh, responds very similar to the PRI um, cover that you would find in the market. And uh, I must say, uh, you know, we've always played in the sort of um, space of complementing ECAs. Usually 15% would be done by the commercial banks, but then they would seek to cover that in the market. And we're now getting more and more inquiries to, to come in on the uncovered tranches, as well as to provide sort of the PRI type of cover that, uh, that one would see. Um, you know, I think it's driven, obviously, by the whole issue of uncertainty. Um, I think people are now sort of, you know, flying towards the more cautious approach, as opposed to saying, well, let's ride it out and see where it goes. I, I think there's uh, definitely been a retraction from that perspective. People just don't know where to from here. Um, perhaps in a year from now, the landscape will be quite different but uh, there definitely has been an impact that we've seen. Okay, thank you. And, and, and sort of related, I mean, I guess sort of that whole sort of notion of, of um, you know, covering the 15%, it's always been pretty prevalent in, in Africa, maybe less prevalent in, in other sort of regions of the world. And that's, that's probably likely to increase now. I think people are going to want that sort of 15% covered. And so that, I'm just kind of curious, to what extent um, activities across the world are impacting Africa? I mean, is this sort of provision of, of PRI or retraction in the PRI market something that's a, an African issue or a, or a global issue? And I guess a follow-up question is obviously the, the PRI market is, is, a, is a very sort of varied beast as well. There is there's the Lloyd's market and then there's, there's a lot of sort of you know, very large institutions um, with, with very good credit ratings that kind of play place sort of separate to that um, I'm just wondering if you're seeing sort of you know within that is there any sort of differentiation firstly Africa compared to other regions and secondly sort of looking more more sort of in detail at that PRI market 
Uh, Gabby, you want to? I think it's a, I think it's a global issue, um, uh, but it's more acutely um, identified when looking at Africa. I think you know the experience that we have seen is where the banks are comfortable with the credit risk of the fifteen percent, but but because they need to mark to market in in a manner that enables them to um, offload that risk, whether it's through PRI or some other hedging arrangement. What they don't like, and Chris mentioned this already, is a lot of volatility in the bond price. So um, it's very difficult for a bank to um, lock down the pricing on a 15%, um, where the facility may take two or three months to close, and then the price in terms of hedging that may move against them. So um, what we have seen is already the, some of the ECAs are coming in and providing the 15% not on the same terms and conditions as they would do on the 85, um, but they're doing this on commercial terms. So they are providing, and I'm thinking of one ECA, which we're working with at this moment in time, who is very keen to provide the 15% um, as a way of facilitating that, that, that trade. Um, so there are different players coming in. Um, that gap, in my opinion, will always be filled. Um, and... Uh, but it's going to be a different players to, 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 to those of the past. Okay. Chris, anything to add here? Yeah, look, I think to go to the earlier point that was made, it's, it's been a very traditional market, a very traditional approach to the market. I think Africa, as Gabby says, has been hit quite hard because well over 90% of infrastructure is, is developed on the government balance sheet. It's, it's a harsh reality of life and priority projects have to be prioritized. So, and I think the governments necessarily then have to look at the most effective forms of finance. I'm quite excited for the 15%, I mean. I'm quite excited by the appearance of convergence between ECAs and development banks. There's always been a never the twain shall meet. Development banks do development and ECAs do exports. And of course, the world isn't that simple and a lot of ECA finance deals are highly socially impactful. Uh, and a lot of uh, development banks do deals which could equally be done by ECAs. And, and I see the convergence of these two sectors. They're not mutually exclusive and they shouldn't be. There's a chance for the industry as a whole, particularly the ECAs, I think, to revisit that notion that, that they promote exports and don't promote sustainable development. I, I don't see that the two are mutually exclusive. And I believe, I think, that seeing uh, people like Afrexim and other development banks work alongside and co-financing these projects is quite exciting and also driving local content. I mean, it's, I just make a, a, a related but important point about the commercial loans. It's not just 15%. And Gabby, you probably see this quite a lot and Melanie, you do too, is that the 15% is the minimum required to be put under the OECD rules if you're looking at an export credit structure. But it, the reason that sometimes that's more is because the local costs are still capped under export credits. And you know, in this time when jobs are trying to be created, and, and I know I've spoken about this before, but it is discriminatory for the OECD rules to say that you can support any third country content but not the local. as long as it's not local. No figure. I don't yeah. understand that. Like, you can employ Swedish people to work on British projects, but you can't employ African people to work on British projects. I just don't get it. 
And if there's one thing the OECD and the ECAs who are involved in these discussions know who they are, should be seriously addressing the local content rules. And it's all they do, I don't know how governments respond to creating jobs and using export credit at the same time. So I, I probably extended the discussion a bit further than, than planned, but it's something I think a lot of us in the market are really passionate about. And this logjam in the OECD discussions, which as we see from the outside, seems to have slowed down, not sped up as a, as a consequence of the crisis. There's been some reactions to real logjams in aviation and, and cruise ships, but there's you'd think it would speed up to respond to the COVID challenges in certain areas and, and local costs would seem just such an easy one to win. Just raise it to 50%, raise it to 100%. There should be no cap. Why should there be a cap? That each ECA can decide what they want to do. No third country content local costs or 100% third country local costs. Your discretion. I totally agree. It yeah. doesn't stack up with the mantra of uh, providing ECA financing whilst at the same time helping to develop a host country's um, economy. It's not justifiable in today's world. Yeah, uh, Melanie, anything to add here? Yeah, I think on the whole theme of convergence, I certainly support that view. We've seen it now. Um, I mean, if you take, uh, you know, the large, the area one Mozambique LNG transaction that was recently closed. I mean, there you've, you've seen how DFIs, ECAs, commercial banks, all of them can all come together and provide a solution. You know, I think that, that you know, obviously those large ticket transactions are not uh, easily uh, available on the continent, but there will be opportunities like that. And I think more and more going forward where people can work together. And I don't see the goals as being divergent from each other. The ultimate goals remain the same. I mean, the technicalities around uh, job creation, et cetera, I believe those uh, can be worked through. And we, we've seen a shift. Um, I mean, Gabby was talking about ECAs, for example, even supporting, albeit on different terms, but supporting the 15% and I think increasingly we, we should be able to see them becoming more flexible. Then I think it then opens up the, the opportunity for the DFIs and ECAs to work together even more. So I see this as a huge opportunity. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, keep keeping on this convergence because yeah, I mean the, the, obviously the example you use is, is Mozambique LNG, which is, a, a huge a huge kind of transformational deal multi-billion dollars and is it a case where actually when it's a big deal like that dfis and ecas have got the the resource and the time to sort of get to the negotiating table and work out how they can work together but for something that's a slightly smaller ticket than that it's just it's just not going to happen i mean is that is that fair or or no yeah, totally fair. I think the only reason the only reason it happened on Mozambique was the sheer size of the transaction. If the transaction was one billion rather than five, the ECAs would have done the whole lot, and the banks would have been much more happier for the whole thing to be done with just ECAs. This is a capacity uh, issue where you've got a large transaction that you know the for that capacity and bringing the DFIs on board. End of story, in my opinion. I don't see this as being anything else other than that. 
Melanie? Happy to be challenged. <laughs> so uh, I, I won't challenge that, Gabby, but I think it certainly was the incentive to bring them all to the same table and to, to work together to find a solution. However, don't you think this then forms the platform, now that they've accomplished it, would it not then create the basis for them to work together, maybe not necessarily on just the large ticket transactions? Now that the sort of formula is there, maybe it's not perfect, it can be tweaked, but at least there's a basis on which to work off. Yes, the incentive was to bring them into this large ticket transaction, where everyone had a vested interest, but at least it got people around the table and it got them working on a solution. So maybe going forward, it could form a platform for them to be able to, to do this increasingly. I mean, that's a big question. I think, you know, and, and you know, from a GKB Ventures perspective, we don't get involved in the $5 billion transaction. So, um, uh, so you know, the, most of our projects are up to about half a billion at, at, its, at its largest. And, um, but in reality, most of our transactions are 100 million, 150 million dollars. What we're finding on those type of transactions, we much prefer to have one ECA who's doing the whole lot of direct lending, because by by doing it in that manner, we've we know that we're coming up with the cheapest form of long dated finance, and we're only dealing with one insurer, um, and that enables the projects to happen really quickly. Um, so speed, uh, transparency affordability um, and, and low cost on a long-term basis is, is, is what our clients as sponsors are looking for. Um, my sense is if you have a whole group of different, uh, different stakeholders with slightly different agendas, um, costs go up and, it, and they're more complex and take longer to close. I think the mandate point is something to focus on here. Because I think with the PRO market, it's sort of it's like a nice fine layer of sort of plaster you put on stuff, and it all looks the same at the end. But underneath, the bricks are all different levels, and and, and there's there's sort of there's cracks in the in the in, in the brickwork. I, I think, and therefore, you get a commoditized product, which then can be invested in by banks. I think one of the lessons we've drawn from this is that that even though the end risk for some of these projects is the same, i.e., there's a sovereign borrower in Africa, you could argue that's a homogenous risk, the borrower will or won't pay. The mandate for each of the agencies and development banks getting involved in that deal is different and the strategic nexus for them to work together is different. And I think that's where the exciting opportunity lies to say, well, if it's a hospital project, and I promised myself I wasn't going to talk about another aspect of the OECD rules, but I will again. Why do hospitals only get 10-year repayment terms? Mm -hmm. And 18 years for a wind farm. Don't, don't understand. Wind farms get paid for the power. Hospitals rarely make money. They're a future cost burden. They should get longer terms, particularly with COVID. That would be a really obvious thing to do as well. We'll put that in the suggestion box. We can we can send to the OECD after the podcast. When you say sorry in the suggestion box, but I'm quite keen because I mean, is it a case of because the healthcare has been brought up 
um, quite a lot over the last four months, as you might imagine, um, and the idea that ECAs could play a more proactive role in financing healthcare. Um, in terms of the interaction that's taken place on this, is it really just a case of info at OECD and just see what happens? Or is there any sort of discussion or any ECAs that proactively look to, even on a sort of uh, just on a bilateral basis, increase their sort of offer of what they can do within healthcare? Or is it just same as it ever was? I would I always like to think something's happening, which is great when I'm not aware of. So there may be minds greater than mine, and more senior than mine, who are planning some fantastic revisions to the OECD rules. Uh, I don't know, hopefully they are, but all I've seen so far is a reaction to an immediate need, which is in those two sectors previously mentioned, and a slowdown in general discussions about revisions. Uh, I could only see then, uh, if I was a CEO of an ECA, which was really good at building hospitals and supply, I'd, I'd be tempted to, to just breach and, and extend it extend payment terms because I don't see the logjam uh, at the OECD level moving anytime mm. fast on any of these points, local costs or, or projects which have, I guess, a, a greater social impact. Again, it's going to that point, the, the borrower is the moth, but how do you measure the social impact of what you're doing and, and, and that, that, and, you know, for hospitals, it makes no sense for them to have 10-year repayment terms. They should have longer. Uh, and it, it makes no sense. Sorry, uh, Chris. It makes no sense. Sorry to interrupt you, but it, I totally agree with you. It makes no sense when under the OECD rules for defence projects, the export credit agencies can do what they want. So if they want to do 20 years, um, they can do that. If they... Um, oh. It's, it's, I mean, there are these anomalies within the export credit agencies, but there is another one though, that an export credit agency can, if it wants to go longer than the, the standard terms and conditions. But all it needs to do is prior consult with the other export credit agencies and just say, for this reason, this is a poor country, you know, developing world, they want to do hospitals, we want to provide support for these hospitals, we want to do 20 years, uh, and we want to do it at the SIR rate. Um, an export credit agency can and give notice to the OECD that that is its intention and the, re the remaining parties of the OECD um, can object. And, uh, but the interesting thing is that many ECAs don't even use that. So there isn't the, I wouldn't blame the OECD, it's even the ECAs themselves are not really uh, willing to push the envelope. So I think the problem is not just at the OECD, I think it's also, at the individual ECAs themselves. Yeah, but Melanie, is, is healthcare something that sort of uh, that, that you sort of looked at, and is is there a way that sort of Afrig Zimbank can can assist in this area in any way? Yes, certainly. It remains a very core focus by Zimbank. Um, it forms part of the sort of medi tourism uh, initiative that we have. So we have supported a number of healthcare transactions. Even um, under the recent Katimfa facility, there's been a number of transactions done to beef up healthcare sector, um, acquisition of, uh, sort of medical supplies and equipment, as well as infrastructure development. So Afrexin Bank is very active in, in the healthcare sector. And this is something we would certainly want to increase 
and uh, you know, be able to see how we could work with the ECAs more and more to provide the solutions that are needed. Okay, thanks. Um, I think, Dan, can I just make one more point on this? Because Gabby's right, and I agree with Melanie, but Exim did the study on the OECD rules that less than 33% or whatever it was of export credit financing is being done under the consensus now or in accordance with the consensus. Uh, and that's a, it, it's, it risks losing relevance. And the amount of time that's been invested in what's a really good document, I mean, is it, there's a real risk of relevance being lost. This was discussed in a number of different forums. And, and that, can, that relevance can only diminish further if if the uh, the framework isn't updated ideas have been put forward to completely rip it up and have a very loose framework of principles but it's not a bad document it's just it just there's elements of it which obviously are crying out for improvement and for various reasons some ecas will derogate others won't it would be nice to see it being tested further but the risk the overarching risk is that it, it continues to lose relevance which would be a great shame Mm, yeah, and look, I mean, I, I understand it's 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 difficult at the best of times to get sort of governments with very different viewpoints to to agree. But perhaps there's uh, other examples elsewhere in the world, or when they they have agreed, and 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 maybe maybe the discussions could learn from that a little bit. I think the the fear with with that I have with with I suppose both the the question of the sustainability opportunity for export finance and the social impact opportunity and indeed the response to covid is that, that there is a risk that the export finance moves too slowly and and solutions are found elsewhere and i guess if you look at the the financial crisis and some of the instruments that came in in the years after the financial crisis to encourage new liquidity and institutional investors into export finance by the time most of these schemes were in place and a number of these refinancing initiatives it was kind of two three years down the line and actually there was there was not so much of a liquidity issue anymore and it you just see wonder if the same thing might might end up happening again but but, but there you go hopefully, some, hopefully some, some ecas are really quick so taking that example dan i remember i was um uh during the global financial crisis i was the chairing of the bba on export finance and trade some ECAs within days, there's one I'm thinking of within six days came back and said, right, because of this, we will do this, this, and this to make it easier for you as bankers in this market to do more export credit for us as, as the exporting nation. Um, another ECA took six years to come back. And um, by that time, the problem that they, they, they had solved had gone. Um, so I think some ECAs are very quick to see the opportunity of um, that can help their domestic exporters so i wouldn't paint them all in in in, in the same brush here there, there is active competition between the ecas yeah no that's uh, that's that's fair enough I, I mean i do think there's sometimes there's a yeah some of the, the the discussions that take place on a policy level i see you know the the tree people in lord of the rings where sort of they have to discuss and it all happens very slowly but at the end of the day they play a very important role in the book and 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 play a part in saving the day so you never, you never know, right? Um, okay, so just um, just moving on slightly, I'm quite keen to get onto the issue of, of origination. Um, I think sort of, Chris, you kicked off by sort of saying that there's a difference between current book and future book. And I think sort of a lot of the people that I've been speaking to uh, 
so far in the last few months uh, within the export finance community. It's really been a case of what's in the pipeline. They're actually managing to successfully close it. They're on Zoom calls and it, it, it's working itself through. But I don't think anyone has done much origination so far this year. Um, and I'm just wondering, and maybe sort of, Chris, I'll come to you first. Um, at what point does that change? At what point uh, is there going to be, particularly for the commercial banks uh, and, and for the exporters as well, uh, a real need to get out and generate new business? Because at some point there's going to be a huge, um, uh, yeah, sort of decline in volumes if, if this doesn't happen. Yeah, really interesting question, Dan. Uh, I think. I think we've all learned where the Teams button is on our laptops, that strange thing that was sitting there for years, and it actually does something. <laughs> and I think it's, it's, it's shown that we don't always have to jump on a plane uh, and come back with a, have a cupboard full of amenity kits uh, in, uh, <laughs> under the stairs. Uh, I think the guys who are hurting, so the financing side, however important we like to think we are, doesn't always need to travel. I think if you've got your existing relationships with the ministries in Africa and they know who you are and you're on WhatsApp or on, on Zoom, you can, you can do an awful lot remotely that previously you traveled for. I think it's the exporters themselves who are doing the hard yards, the development of projects with the, with the line ministries identifying the location for the hospital, the road, the priority projects. And I think you can divide that into two. So this will feed through. Is my, is my assessment is it will impact uh, uh, where you have contractors who are already on the ground executing. They have the, the country teams there uh, and can continue to maintain the dialogues with the line ministries around the next projects and they feed back into the finance teams. Uh, but I think for, for, for those who aren't, yeah, you, you, it, it's, it's a continent of relationships Relationship is really important, and unless you've got the relationship already that you can continue to use social you know, media for, or you're on the ground, I think it will it will inevitably flow through to less people trying to develop business on the continent, and it comes down to exporters and developers, as you know, pushing always the the ones who push the deals through, uh, and if they're not travelling, some are, I think, uh, but a lot aren't, then inevitably that has to flow through, would be my suggestion, to uh, to less projects being developed. Okay, and, and from a the point of view of... I'm open to thoughts, though. From well, I, I just want to stay, stay with you, Chris, for a second. Obviously, you, you know, you work for, for, for a bank and, you, you know, you will have your, your targets and at some point in the future, there's a conversation to happen with your, your bosses or your bosses, bosses, bosses to why there's a reduced pipeline um i mean is, is it likely to be that there's and i'm talking across the industry there's just going to be an understanding look it is what it is it's going to be the same across sort of everywhere or do you think at some point it's going to be well there's going to be some pressure you've got to get on with it sort of get out there a bit more i think uh i think as an african bank we are seeing more business as a result of covid uh, but we're not a proxy for the market the market still remains dominated by the international banks uh, and why are we seeing a, a surge of business for us so to go to your uh, your budget discussion and target discussion 
because a lot of banks are struggling to close out the deals that they're mandated on. Are international banks responding to this crisis in the way that they responded to the 2008? No, not yet. I think because it started in the banks, this, this started elsewhere, but it, it could flow through. There could be more, you know, people might be reserving more capital uh, for, for problems down the line. What will that do to banks' activities in non-core markets? Will we see banks potentially reserving capital for core markets which aren't in Africa? That's what we saw in 2008. We saw a lot of banks basically retreat. Is that gonna happen here? Uh, yeah, I think in some for some banks, yes, I think uh, definitely. But uh, so for us, as an African bank, it's a good place to be. It's not an easy place to be, but it's a good place to be. Uh, international banks, we do think, will will start to retreat. Some of them, anyway. Okay, and um, Melanie, in the same way as I, I put Chris in in the bank bucket and let him speak for all banks, uh, you, you you can speak for all all ECAs and development banks, I guess. But um, but I, I'd be curious to see if if you've kind of identified that there's likely to be a sort of a, a shortfall in business in going forward. And I, I get that a lot of your time has been spent sort of in the here and now so far. But you're beginning to think onto that two three year horizon of what what volumes are like and how how you can help uh, and assist with that in, in new ways yes so you're quite right um, this has been an extremely busy period I think uh, driven by the uh, need on the Petimfa type support but in addition there's been a lot of spillover business sort of that had started pre-COVID that had been in the pipeline and been processed that are now going through the execution stages. Uh, transactions that were being developed, that uh, governments had gotten some approvals and maybe were going through the process of getting approvals on these that are now coming through. So that's been keeping people very busy. But going forward, and I think what we, we find is relationships are key. You know, having that on the ground presence, face-to-face um, -face dialogue, especially when dealing with some of the, the government uh, borrowers, you need to be in their faces, create the relationships, establish the trust. And if that's not already there, then I think certainly uh, institutions may feel some of that impact. Um, from a DFI perspective, the good thing is, uh, you know, at Frexham Bank, we, we have 51 of the 54 African governments as our member countries. We have those relationships. So from, from our perspective, there may be some impact, but I don't expect it would be as dramatic because, uh, you know, we, we are already there. We also have a presence in uh, all of the regions. So I think from a coverage point of view, I, I think we'll, we'll be okay. I think it's more from the international bank perspective, as Chris was saying. It, there may be some impact felt, I think, combination of not being able to go out there and uh, establish those relationships, as well as uh, possibly sort of retreating from some of those those markets as well. Okay. Gabby, do you want to come in here as well? Yeah. I, I think that I agree with what's been said. In, in, in a nutshell, international banks will and, and are, are already contracting their footprint 
impact in, in Africa. It's much more difficult for an international bank to be traveling in, in this market. So this is the heyday, in my opinion, of local and regional African banks, for the relationship reasons and the you know, in-country knowledge and, and, and understanding. As Chris was saying, you know, 80 to 90% of the projects that are done in Africa are sovereign. Um, and so, you know, local distribution of that sovereign risk, if the PRI cover is not there, then the local banks that have an understanding of local investors who are willing to take sovereign risk, I think is going to make these local and regional banks um, uh, much more relevant uh, going forward. Yes, the market as a whole will be smaller because there'll be fewer projects um, happening. But I don't think that's a problem for the local and regional banks because they will be taking a lion's share of those projects. So I actually think this is going to be a really uh, interesting opportunity for the local and regional banks across Africa. Okay. Um, and, and, and sort of uh, thinking from a sort of borrower point of view as well, I mean, sort of Gabby, if you, were, if you were an African sort of borrower now and you're looking at sort of the options that might be available to you in terms of potentially sort of direct lending, your kind of commercial bank relationships maybe sort of alternative liquidity i mean what 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 should uh what should a, a borrower be thinking in terms of what what maybe they might have access to and 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 you know where there's a where there's an opportunity to get competitive financing well what's really interesting uh, about today's market is the huge divergence uh, in terms of funding costs between banks and through direct lending and I've, in, in, in the decades I've been in this business, I've never seen such a huge gap. So, um, you know, the whole of COVID has uh, impacted um, the bank's liquidity. There's, you know, for the points that were mentioned earlier in terms of uh, concerns about capital and concerns about um, loss on the existing books, um, existing, uh, you know, big liquidity lines have been drawn um, by corporates, so there's been uh, an increase in the wholesale funding. Uh, so banks' funding costs, particularly in dollars, has gone up. Conversely, the sovereigns have been issuing debt like there's no tomorrow, and their yield curve on on the um, on on their bonds have gone down. And and why that is important, because the OECD SO rate is based on those uh, yield curves. Uh, and so where you've got uh, today. Uh, for repayment periods of eight and a half years or longer under direct lending in dollars at 1.46% fixed or in euros for the same tenor, 0.41% fixed. These rates are the cheapest that a borrower can get anywhere. And no bank, however strong they are, are going to compete on those sort of rates. So if I'm a borrower in Africa and I'm looking at tapping the export credit market, then I will want to be maximizing uh, the OECD SIR rates and the direct lending facilities because it's, it's, it gives me the same length of credit I would get under an export credit loan, but it's going to be far, far cheaper than going through a bank. Um, and, and that then leaves a problem because a lot of banks who are in the export credit agency business are therefore the yield of an ECA loan, not necessarily or always providing the cheapest long dated finance for the borrower. Um, so I think the market's going to be split between banks who are going to be very receptive to direct lending. Uh, and we'll see that as a business opportunity in the rounder sense of terms of providing real support to a borrower. 
versus those banks who are just purely there to book and hold, um, you know, long dated high yielding assets. Um, so that diversion between bank funding and SIR rate is, uh, is going to be an interesting dynamic. Mm. Melanie, Chris, anything to add here? Uh, well, from my side, I think uh, I, I agree with Gabby. However, the question that I have, um, I mean, because obviously we are not uh, a concessional lending bank, uh, we borrow like everybody else in the market. So uh, from a cost of funding point of view, I think certainly there's been an uptick. Uh, we will see uh, possibly, you know, right now there's been a lot of pressure on keeping funding rates as low as possible. We've even seen it among some of our African borrowers. However, going forward, I think a year from now, we, we may see a very different picture. Um, coming back to the issue on the surveys, though, <laughs> I see Gabby is shaking his finger and saying no. No way. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, he's on. <laughs> uh, but, but, but coming back, so I think I have a question um, in terms of capacity. Because in, in my previous life, I know, uh, you know, self-funding was not always available. So, so I, I think a question back to Gabby. Yes, while these rates are extremely low um, and people will kind of, you know, fall over themselves trying to access it, to what extent is that capacity going to be there to fulfill the, the need that is out there? Okay, I'll, there's, so there's two questions. One um, about uh, capacity and, and, and the first one in regard to um, where these rates are going to be going forward. I firmly, firmly believe that these low rates that we're getting under the OECD, this low yield curve that we've got now, is going to be here for a number of years. Um, and, and the reason for this is, is there's, there's, there's a number of key reasons. One, um, the sovereigns themselves have been issuing so much debt that they will have to manage the yield curve going forward. Otherwise, they themselves, you know, US government, Europe, uh, UK will, and, and Japan will find that their sovereign debt is unsustainable unless the interest rate remains low. So they will, do it, they will be doing everything they can in their own power to keep their own bond rates as low as possible. Um, the second is that, uh, you know, there's going to be very little inflationary pressure because, you know, I don't think demand going forward um, globally is, is going to create a catalyst to, to increase, increase rates. Um, so um, there was a very interesting uh, paper um, issued by the IMF uh, earlier this year talking about um, comparing what happens post the pandemic and what happens post the war. Um, in terms of interest rates. And they were saying that post the war, you'll get really high real interest rates for 30, 40 years thereafter. However, they, they mapped back looking at pandemics and they went back to the Black Death um, in, 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 in the 14th century where 75 million people died and looked at all of the different pandemics. And what they saw was that interest rate remained unbelievably low for a long period of time post the pandemic. And I don't see that changing where we are today, particularly given where we are with the high level of debt um, and the drivers by government. On capacity issue, you're right. And, and I do get that. And um, what is going to be interesting is um, how that changes. And I think that uh, 
where you've got certain ECAs that have unlimited capacity to provide the SIR rates, the exporters in those countries will win. And those that have, don't have access to the SIR rates, those exporters in those markets will lose. So then becomes a political issue. Are you going to provide a mechanism for your exporters to be at the very least at a level playing field? And remember, the OECD SIR rate is the minimum agreed within the OECD is the minimum interest rate. So if you've got one group of exporters who can, will have access to this, then you will find that other exporters will go to that country and start exporting for that country because of the SIR rates. Um, and I think buyers will be more discriminating on availability of SIR. Why would a buyer, let's take a, an African buyer that's looking at, let's say, a hospital, um, why would they take a, an export credit at, say, 3% versus one at 40 basis points for 10-year for money? Now, the cost of credit on a net present value basis is far more expensive when the, when the yield on that export credit loan is far higher. So they may be saying to the supplier, look, I love your project, I love your hospital, but could you source this from this country where there is the SIR rate? And I think that dynamic, I think, will, will become much more important going forward. And those with the big balance sheets, those with the big capacity to provide SIR, will be the winning exporting countries. Uh, Melanie, anything to add back on this? No, I think I'm, I'm good. Thanks, Dan. Nothing further on this. Please. Yeah, and, and, and Chris, and anything on this or, or indeed on sort of European banking um, policy in the uh, mid-16th century? Oh, I have lots to talk about that, but we need another podcast, Dan. Uh, okay. But I dispute the, the Black Death data that Gabby put out. Hey, 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 I've got the paper in front of me because I knew you would dispute it. <laughs> Black Debt. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, I, have, I do have one other point to add, which is I think the moves by some ECAs to set up a supply chains to capture uh, SME mid size exports as a way to address the SME issue. So the UK, Sweden have been really successful in, in attracting and being EPC contractor friendly and supply chain construction friendly. And that's not a simple exercise. It's not something you do overnight. Uh, it is an investment of time and effort by the EPC contractor and that needs to be reciprocated by the ECA. But inevitably, I agree that that will see uh, its more sophisticated borrowers will and users of export finance will increasingly direct or seek the best terms that they got last time and uh, ask the EPC contractors to do that. I see that's why you know, Gabby's firm has a real role to play in the market and, and others like Bluebird Finance and Projects who are busy actively helping contractors do this, which is find the best financing source for the borrower and a sourcing matrix for the borrower. And it requires an investment of time and effort and they play a valuable role in that space. And we've done a number of supply chain deals at Investec, uh, so I, I endorse that. I think there's two consequences of that. One is that, is that banks won't get the long 
terminals in income they're used to getting on export credits, even though it's perhaps a bit higher now than it was, one, one and a half, it's still something they value and fight hard for maintaining the capital treatment for that. I think the other side is some ECAs with very attractive programs will start to get risk concentration issues in some markets where there's a lot of demand for their cover. So it's a combination of do they have enough liquidity and then do they have enough credit capacity. Uh, last point is that at Investec, we never came into the market because we had the, the, the unlimitless pile of cheap dollars or euros to deploy. So we never planned and don't ever plan to build uh, sort of tens of billions of dollars of deals which are guaranteed by ECAs. We don't believe banks are natural holders of those asset classes because of the liability structure of banks' balance sheets. So our, our role has always been to find institutional investors or specialist funders to fund the export credit. We do our job, which is help the exporter with the campaign, uh, help them develop the relationships they need with the ministry, structure the financing, but the actual funding of the export credit lies more naturally elsewhere. The shorter dated commercial loan, five years, much more sweet spot, I believe, for a, a bank balance sheet. And that's where we, and I think the regional banks and local banks, Gabby referenced and, and Melanie earlier, will, will have a very valuable role to play. I, I think the important point to note here, last point, I keep saying it's the last point, but really this is the last point, is that those refi guarantee programs, some of them are open to regional local banks in Europe. Others are not due to the, the very banks who know the clients, live on the continent, have the relationships, know what the important infrastructure is, are excluded from those programs because of their rating. It makes no sense. So uh, it's, like a, it's like a refinance club for rich banks to raise funding even cheaper than they do already, <laughs> as opposed to local banks who could really do an amazing role in this market accessing it. And I think that's the trick. If you can get a, you know, a number of regional banks access to those programs, they can start playing a really leading role arranging these deals on the continent. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm going to add on top of that, um, you, you'll get some export credit agencies who will say to a bank, why are you repackaging this asset? Um, and if you say, well, I can find... Um, you know, alternative forms of funding, which is cheaper than my own balance sheet, then the export credit agency will say, well, can we share in some of that benefit? Um, which then provides a disincentive for the bank to do the repack in the first instance. So that club that Chris was talking about becomes narrower and narrower. Um, that just doesn't make any economic sense. Hmm. Thanks. I, I, I'm going to, um, well, so you mentioned sort of supply chain earlier, uh, sort of, Chris, and I think, I guess, I, I'd like to sort of just, um, the final topic I wanted to talk about was was probably the more um, practical element of, of, of COVID in terms of what it means for sort of financing either sort of larger transactions or, or projects where I guess if you think of a sort of traditional project finance structure where you have a couple of years construction risk period, um, just due to the fact that supply chains are going to be a lot more complex and, and there's going to be a lot more boots on the ground, that it's going to be a lot more challenging to get boots on the ground, literally building projects at the moment. And I think there'll be a lot more regulation as to 
when workers can work, how closely they can work together. And as you said, this could be an 18 month issue. Is anything being built into um, future project financings, um, particularly in Africa, that sort of makes allowances for the difficulties that sort of this that are going to be found now either in the construction period or, or or in sort of the supply chains in the background has that changed anything in terms of future financing structures melanie maybe i can start with you yeah. so dan i don't think we we should expect radical change people that are already on the ground have implemented certain safety measures um, you know, social distancing, sanitizing, you know, the sort of uh, the practical steps as dictated by the relevant jurisdictions that they're in. Um, we, we, you know, this now has become a, a feature that's discussed, uh, you know, when, when we engage with clients, sort of what are you doing? What are your uh, measures that you have in place? What's been the impact on your workers? So it, it, it's sort of part of the, the normal discussions around risk and safety aspect. But I don't, me personally, I don't think that we're going to see anything drastic or, or any drastic change to the way things are being done. Uh, but perhaps uh, Chris or Gabby could have different views, but that's certainly been our experience so far. Chris? I, I think, Gabby, okay, if I have a go? Hey, go ahead. Uh, I think, yeah, Melanie agree. I, I, I think this goes back to supply chain and sourcing and content. I think the more flexible ECAs can be to accommodate this logistical challenge, the better. Those who have flexible sourcing uh, content policies will, will benefit and be easier for, you know, there's always a hard target in the end that people have to hit, right? So, you know, it's like, so that you've got, you've got the, what we spoke about earlier, which is which sector is this project in? Which SDG boxes does it tick? What's the social impact of this project? That, that you know, leaving the export aside, that will dictate a whole bunch of things, including investors for the commercial tranche. But I think then, then the, the other overlay for the export credit is, aside from being, being brave and, and, and stepping beyond the 10 year repayment term for a hospital or the 30% or the local cost, we put down challenges from this this podcast to the market stepping beyond the 30 percent local cost content would be exactly this i think so uh yeah it's uh yeah sorry i'll let you go gabby um and looking at project finance in africa um and i'm generalizing here i think you could put them into two buckets um the first is for socio-economic projects hospitals etc cetera, etc cetera. um and i think the changes as a result of covid for those type of projects uh, should be a greater increase in the usage of local currency eca financing now i think it's and i've always been a, a um strong advocate that the ecas and the bank should be doing more to encourage this as a product it makes no sense in my opinion for a socio-economic project that only generates local currency to have hard currency debt associated with it. So if there's one change that I would like to see in, in, in project finance is local currency. And some ECAs are trying hard, but I think a lot of other ECAs could do a lot more. Um, the other market, which I think is, is pertinent for Africa, um, is mining and metals. 
and um, and and I think there there's going to be um, I believe a resurgence of mining metals ECA deals in Africa, in that um, you know they or these projects avoid the vagrancies of local currency depreciation because there's hard currency revenues um, of the commodity against the hard currency debt. Um, it does employ a lot of local people and, and local supply chain um, and relatively speaking are, are, are quite quick to set up. Now, none of them are quick, but relatively speaking to other project finance deals, in my opinion, a mining metal transaction is an easier one to do than, than a PFI PPP in a particular market. Um, so I think those are the those are the two areas where I would see um, real opportunity. So mining metals do more quickly. I think they would also help to rejuvenate the local economies, uh, and and on to do PFI. Sorry, P, um, PFI PPP. Then I think there needs to be a greater push of, of local currency debt. Okay. Thanks. Um, and, and just, uh, I guess, just to, to, to wrap up, I just wonder if in terms of just f final words in terms of sort of, uh, you know, what, what to expect over the, the, the next, next year. And so, Melanie, I'll give you sort of first, what sort of a, a final concluding thought from your side? So from our side, I think we, we certainly expect um, business as usual to continue. I mean, what, what we've discussed on this call, is there going to be uh, sort of a, a uh, you know, from a DFI perspective, I think any of the, the slack that's been experienced in the international finance markets will certainly be picked up by ourselves, the DFIs, uh, the multilateral banks that are on, active on the continent. So I, I certainly think the momentum will continue, the, what, what we've been seeing so far. Uh, if anything, I expect it will it would probably increase. We we are we may also see a lot more combining of forces, things like um, the coal guarantee platform that we've been active in. I think there'll be more and more such um, activities on the continent to be able to, uh, you know, combine your efforts, do more to support the the projects. I mean, I'm speaking purely from an Africa perspective. So I, I think there's good opportunity and. Uh, you know, a year from now, I, I think we'll be in a, a good position, much better position. That's good, good to hear. Uh, Gabby? I've got three. So I think number one, I think, is the rise of China in terms of its uh, greater soft power across Africa. Um, China, I think, will be seen as being dealing with the crisis much better than, than Western Europe. And I think they will be leveraging their, their soft power um, much more uh, impactfully than they have been in the past. Uh, second, I would see that, um, and my concern here is uh, some countries as a result of, of IMF programs, you know, looking for debt holidays, G20 Paris Club, I think a lot of sovereigns may fall into a concessional um, borrowing market only. And I think uh, those export credit agencies that have a solution to concessional financing will become prominently uh, or become more prominent across Africa. Um, and the third um, is that I think there's going to be less coordination between the export credit agencies and, and within the OECD. I think there is, um, you know, this populist mantra of my country first, you know, let's take back 
country, I think it's going to be fueling um, a, a more uh, singular um, approach and, and therefore there's going to be a bit of a race to the bottom, which I think is a, is a concern for everybody or should be. Okay, so we've had one sort of positive outlook, one slightly more negative outlook. Chris, over to you for the final word. No pressure. Uh, I think the market stands at a crossroads. I don't think we've had crises before. Uh, we all know ECAs are counter-cyclical. We talk about it. But you've got the, the, uh, the climate crisis overlay, the sustainability social demand and drive for sustainable uh, financing. Uh, you've got the EU taxonomy coming up. This product finds itself at a crossroads where suddenly all the disciplines it has applied for the last hundred years, which made it actually quite inconvenient for some borrowers to access value for money, ESG standards, financial crime standards, all these checks and balances, disperse of the exporter, and not to the borrower, monitoring of construction, all these responsible lending practices have suddenly come into vogue. It is the only product available right now for delivering, or the main product, for delivering responsible, sustainable infrastructure in Africa, outside of project finance structure. And project finance will not do much in the overall scheme of the 90% plus beam. So we stand at a crossroads as a market. We can either let this opportunity go by to reposition the product, to really turn from a 150 to $250 billion a year market, which it currently is, to become a $500 billion a year market, or we can, we can let that pass us by, or look in the mirror and realize, and I know we've done a lot of sort of complaining on this podcast about a couple of key features of the OECD rules, local costs, etc etc but that shouldn't you know it, we shouldn't deny the fact the product is amazing the market is amazing all the things it does all the things the banks do by default does not exist anywhere else so it has this unparalleled opportunity because of covid to react to the current situation and reposition the product as a as, as a delivery mechanism for sustainable development goals uh, and, and I think the, a lot of the banks in the market recognize that there's some exciting work going on in the ICC Export Finance Committee and the Sustainability Working Group on that front. Uh, and I know you, Dan, and the team at TXF are also really, uh, really passionate about this topic. So I, I, I think that's the challenge. Is in, in, it can be in big ways and small ways. We as a market, the banks and the ECAs can really move this product forward. So an opportunity, I would say, as well as a challenge. Brilliant. Okay. Well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll end it there. So, so uh, Melanie Lawrence, uh, Gabby Buck, Chris Mittman, thank you very much. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day. It will brighten all the way. If we keep on the sunny side of As we found out from today's discussion, development banks are going to be playing a crucial role in the recovery post-COVID. With that in mind, we have launched a brand new free newsletter called Uxolo, which is focused purely on development finance activity across the world. If you head to uxologlobal.com, that's U-X-O-L-O, 
www.global.com. You can sign up to the newsletter for free and receive daily news and weekly insights on what is going to be happening ahead in this very, very important sector.